Hello, and welcome to Humanities 101 on the radio. I am Lisa Prinz. And I'm Kendra Cowley. We are the coordinators of Humanities 101, or HUM, and are part of a team that includes an incredible intern, Morning Star, Willier, and four fabulous volunteers, Anne, Jay, Bobby, and Claudia. For those who don't know, HUM offers free, non-credit, university-level courses open to anyone who wants to learn, regardless of previous education or background. There is no application process, you just come as you are. Although many people love learning for learning's sake, HUM was born out of the recognition of inequity in access to post-secondary education. HUM is one way the University of Alberta tries to make learning more accessible. It's free and includes all supplies. No previous education experience is needed and there are no tests and there are no grades. Well, we wish there were credits given for the work that happens in HUM. Without grades, we cannot provide credit. That being said, we do have a certificate for those who are able to participate this term. Participation is going to look a lot different this year, and we don't quite know what it means. But for now, we imagine it is sharing stories and knowledge with us through various activities we will introduce throughout the term. In HUM, we view study as the intentional, collective thinking that happens when we come together and share our stories, thoughts, feelings, and experiences. HUM challenges assumptions about who and what knowledge is welcome at the university. I have been doing this for almost a decade and know that theory and experience feed each other. Kendra, on the other hand, has been here for well, about a month. It's true, I'm a freshie. However, Lisa and I met in a HUM class at Wings of Providence Second Stage Women's Shelter, where I was a youth worker and helped out with a class there. And that was a while ago, several years back anyways, and we continue to hold classes at Wings of Providence, just not this term. And though we wish we could all be in the same room this year, because of COVID, HUM will be happening right here on CJSR 88.5 FM, every Friday night from 6 to 7 p.m. You can also check out our website, hum101onair.wordpress.com, where you'll find the course syllabus and any extra readings, links, or other bits of information. You can email us at hum101 at ualberta.ca, or you can text or phone us at 587-709-5472. We're not great at answering the phone, and it takes a while to get back, but we will. If technology isn't your thing, because it definitely isn't Lisa's, mail us at hum at CJSR room 0-09 Students Union Building, University of Alberta, Edmonton AB, T6G 2J7. We're happy to drop off stamped envelopes and all course materials if you'd like to participate via the post. Please get in touch and we'll find ways to get the supplies to you. Even though we are unable to meet in person, this show is being recorded and broadcasted here in Edmonton, Treaty 6 territory. This is a place full of incredible stories and storytellers. While all the storytellers have different experiences and identities, one thing that brings us together in this course is a relationship or a connection to the city. These relationships, though varied and complicated, are full of incredible wisdom and knowledge that teach us much about ourselves and the world around us. 
What some of us might know as Edmonton has long been known as a Miskwichiwaskagan in Nehiawewin or Cree. This name, translated as Beaver Hills or Mountain House, is an important part of the history of this land. To learn more about this history, we spoke to Nikki Lagosi Shimp, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. I'm Nikki Lagosi Shimp, and I am an assistant professor in the Faculty of Native Studies. So this term, we're facilitating a radio show about storytelling for Humanities 101. And we like to always begin in learning together by recognizing the land where we are learning. And this term will be broadcasting from Edmonton. Now, Edmonton is a rather new name for this place. And I'm wondering if you could share with us what you know about the Cree name for Edmonton and what it is. Absolutely. Uh, so in Plains Cree, our name for Edmonton is Amiskwatiwaskahigan. And this literally breaks down into three words. Amisk is our Cree word for beaver. Watsi is mountain or hills, depending on context. And waskahigan is house. So when we say Amiskwatiwaskahigan, we're literally saying beaver mountain house. And what that signifies is the river valley and you know the territory of the university of alberta and on the other side or on the legislative uh, legislature epcor buildings and so on and why this was significant was it was a traditional meeting place it was a, a place of gathering just as many uh water ports are around the world right whether it's oceans or or seas or rivers the, these points in the river are, are big meeting places and you know there were many uh, many people would gather in this space including you know we hear that statement um, you know the traditional territory uh, you know with the Papas Chase Cree, uh, the Nakoda Sioux, the Haudenosaunee Iroquois, the Métis, the Blackfoot and, and many more that's what they're meaning is that it was a meeting place of, of many different peoples. Now, I've heard uh, the pronunciation of Miskwichiwaskahagan um, pronounced many different ways, and I myself am learning how to pronounce it, and I'm wondering if you could speak to why there might be subtle differences in pronunciation or where I um, am working and needing to work on my pronunciation. Absolutely. So uh, the Cree language is spoken right across Canada from the Alberta BC border all the way to northern Quebec. And within that, there are five dialects. Even within those dialects, there's regional variation. So for instance, in, in Edmonton here, that C sounds like a T, right? Whereas even up north or a little more south, it is pronounced more of a CH sound. So again, that's just showing the richness of diversity, just like English or, or French or any language, quite frankly. There's a little, maybe a bit of pronunciation variation. So not to say that one is better or more correct, rather just different. That's good to know as I'm learning and as we all learn together that there is space as we move between those places. So how does calling this place a Miskwichi Waskayagan tell a different story than calling it Edmonton? Well, Edmonton doesn't tell us a rich history, whereas a Miskwichi Waskayagan tells the it flips the gaze and it tells a different story it tells the story of uh, a meeting place 
of people's, you know, living, in, you know, in traditional ways and, and living together in harmony. In, and this includes settlers, by the way. You know, there was a lot of trading uh, going on at the time. And so it shows that there's a long history to this place well before contact, well before uh, colonization. Now, you talk about language in your working life and have thought a lot about language. And I'm wondering if you could tell me why language matters now, perhaps more than ever. Absolutely. You know, the words that we say aren't just, you know, little bits of grammar. Rather, the words that we choose to use are deliberate and they tell a particular story in a particular way. So when, you know, for instance, we say a Miskwatsi Waskahigan, we're deeply acknowledging the history of this place and respect of the peoples that have been here since time immemorial, rather than, uh, you know, looking at Edmonton as something rather new. So in, in this sense, language is, is deeply important, depending on, of, of course, which language we're speaking. I think now we see a movement across this country and many countries where people are pushing back against names and challenging names. Um, and it's become quite controversial as people push back the other way. I'm wondering if you could talk about it in a context outside of Edmonton as we see statues crumble and um, name plaques taken down. Uh, Oliver, for example, here in Edmonton, there's a real, I think, fantastic push to change that name as Frank Oliver um, has a really fraught history here. I'm wondering if you could talk about that in a larger political context language. Absolutely. Um, so when when we push to change names, whether it's of you know controversial sports teams, whether it's of of controversial uh, spaces and statues and acknowledgments, this can push people into a really uncomfortable place of acknowledging that Canada has a very deep and complicated ongoing history. I'll say of of racism and of colonialism, and a lot of times, uh, you know, we go through school and we might learn about Indigenous people in, you know, one chapter, for instance, uh, of, of a book talking about residential schools or colonialism as, as this event that happened hundreds of years ago, back in time. You know, what's the problem now? You know, we learn that Canada is a multicultural nation. We've got the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Peoples around the world look up to us as this international peacekeeper. So when that's the story that you've, you've been told and retold, right, the founding father's myth of the, you know, the French and the British who built this great country, to all of a sudden hear that actually we have a really deep, dark, and, and quite frankly, ugly history that is ongoing. And I say ongoing because this isn't something that's just happened in the past. There are communities that continue to face, uh, you know, race-based barriers every day, all the time. And that's not acceptable in 2020. And so I think that part of it, is, I mean, part of that pushback, part of that resistance comes from hearing a very uncomfortable and uh, counter-intuitive narrative that you've been told all your life to all of a sudden be, you know, told, wow, 
everything I thought I knew about Canada is wrong. And that can be a tough spot to be in. And, you know, it's very easy, especially for us as Canadians to look uh, south of the border at our American neighbors and say, wow, look at all this, you know, structural racism going on. Look at, you know, the, you know this BIPOC movement, all these things that are happening and, and to look at the U.S. as this extreme case. But we need to recognize that those same issues exist here in Canada. And it's not about, you know, trying to, to throw guilt or, or lay blame, but rather to say that, you know, nowadays, especially with everything online, there's really no excuse not to educate yourself. So my cookum, which is Cree word for, for grandmother, my, my cookum used to say, you have to know your history if you want to walk away from it. And so, you know, that uncomfortable space, you know, that uncomfortable truth that people might get confronted with is an amazing opportunity to to say, look, I can learn from this. I can I can do something better tomorrow. I can learn my history. And you know, we're all here. We're all in this space. You may have heard the term "we're all treaty people," and, and that's where it comes from. It's not to say that you know, oh, okay, treaty is just an indigenous issue for indigenous folks on reserves right? We're all on this land. We're all using this space together and, you know, trying to, to build a healthy um, life and, and have healthy relationships together. And unless we acknowledge the land that we're on and that history, we can't move, you know, move forward. We can't have, have healthy right relations. Thank you. One last question. Why it is important to have those treaty acknowledgements and why it might be important for us to practice and to uh, work on referring to this place and calling it by Amuskwichi Waskayakin. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the treaty acknowledgement and territorial statement really uh, isn't just a checkbox, right? We talk about doing better. We talk about learning. We talk about allyship. Right. It can't just be, well, I've, I've said this before an event or I've put that acknowledgement in my email. No, this type of decolonial work right, is an ongoing process and it takes action and it starts with ourselves and, and taking that time to acknowledge where you are, where you're located and, and really to know that history. And so uh, you probably want me to unpack decolonize. So when we talk about colonialism as this, you know, very racialized uh, process that, that happened in the past and that continues to happen, uh, if we want to, you know, to start to undo some of that work and, and you know, think better, be better, you know, better, better people, better treaty people, better Canadians, right? It's important then to start rethinking how we built this country and what it was built upon. And with that, I think I'm going to say uh, a very large thank you from all of us. And um, I appreciate you sharing that with us. And moving forward, we have a better understanding of where we are and where we're going, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get somewhere different and better for all of us. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. As we move forward over the airwaves, we'll continue to negotiate our relationship and connection to the place, the people, and all other living beings we live, work, learn, and play with. So here we are, on the radio, at the U of A, on Treaty 6 land. 
Even though this radio show was born out of a response to finding an alternative to online, thanks COVID, and even though we have never done it and it's all new to us, radio as an educational medium is not new. Radio has a long-standing history of broadcasting information and community building right here on campus. We're not making something new. We're participating in a long-standing and ongoing practice of using radio as an active tool of knowledge sharing. We spoke with David Ward, the Director of Programming at CKUA, a community radio station broadcasting across Alberta, as a local expert on the history of educational radio in Amasquichi, Wiskaigan. I'm David Ward. I'm currently the uh, Director of Programming at CKUA, which is the provincial public broadcaster and which has uh, its roots at the University of Alberta, where we signed on in November of 1927. Well, that is a perfect segue into my big question. So this term, HUM, is hosting non-credit university on air. We're broadcasting over the radio. People we tell are getting very excited about this idea, but it is not a new idea. I think people might be surprised to know. I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the history of university on air in Edmonton. As I mentioned uh, in my introducing myself, CKUA's roots go back to 1927 when radio was still relatively a new technology, maybe not unlike the internet 10, 15 years ago. And a forward thinking professor or department head, I can't remember which, put in a line item on their budget that eventually that money went for a transmitter because at the time they knew that using technology could transmit radio signals to people who live far away from the university. And because radio is free, as long as you had a radio, you could tune in and receive an education at the time. And so I guess the plan for HUM 101 is really a variation of back to the future. Can you tell me what types of programming they were broadcasting at that time? Oh, they had everything, I think, from classics, like Greek and Roman classics, to home economics. There were agricultural programs, because their audience was, even though people were listening in Edmonton, the reason for uh, putting the money into a transmitter and a radio broadcasting studio was that it eliminated the need for people to physically have to travel to the university to receive the education and instead using new technology as i mentioned comparing it to the internet of today it, radio could you could send that signal all across the province so people be it in the city or on farms simply had to dial in that frequency and could hear a wide range of experts talking about a wide wide variety of subjects and were those experts predominantly university uh, faculty? In the very early years, yes, definitely. Unfortunately, our archive, our archive doesn't hold program schedules. We've been able to put together some things from clippings from the journal because the journal had radio highlights uh, in some of their editions, uh, but we don't have in, in the CKUA archive those program schedules. So it's been trying to piece together what exactly the programming was. And when did music come about on CKUA then? Well, music would have been from the start. There, were, there was live music. Um, there was a piano, which we still have actually from 1927, is, is in our Edmonton building. But it, so there was a lot, but it was live music for the most part. 
We certainly hadn't built up much of a record collection. And there were performances by university choirs, university ensembles and soloists, and then eventually members from the community. And over time, we began to build up uh, a record library and be able to play records on air as well. So if I could talk about contemporary uses in radio as well for a second. So people think of radio as an old timey, old kind of technology. Could you speak to radio in contemporary times, how radio is continuing to be used? Well, radio is a, I liken some radio sometimes to the bicycle in that it's very efficient technology. And you can, you can do a lot with it. And one of, the, one of the great things about the radio is admission is free and the technology like a, 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 a transistor radio might cost you 15 or 20 bucks. That's way different than buying a laptop or a cell phone or even a television and trying to hook it up to cable. So radio is a, an inexpensive effective technology to transmit the human voice, anything that is audio in the audio spectrum, human voice, music, sound of whatever kind. And that's why it fits so well into education because there were few barriers to access. And for the most part, unless you have a very graphic intensive um, uh, program, I, could, I imagine it would be hard to teach art history <laughs> over the radio, but so many other things can be effectively, effectively transmitted and and learned by just using your ears uh, with with radio technology. How does CKUA use radio now to share stories? Currently. Um, Unlike many other periods in our past, we are primarily an all-music station. We present many different styles of music with hosts um, who have uh, all kinds of expertise. Our hosts live in everywhere from Austin, Texas to Vancouver Island, most of them, of course, here in Alberta. But we are now much less focused on education where 30, 40 years ago, we did still a lot of our programming was educational, but the current uh, chapter of CKUA is, is music. And what stories do you tell through your music? So CKUA is known as quite an eclectic station. And I'm just wondering if you could kind of explain a little bit of why that's important. There have been people who've written some pretty good essays about the educational nature of eclecticism because being eclectic means you're drawing from a wide range of sources. And that by its very nature is already expansive in the sense, rather than talking about one thing all the time, by presenting a wide range of music, for example, by its, by its very nature, you are sharing with an audience the fact that country music has important things to say, just like jazz music or classical music or music from Southeast Asia. Eclecticism reminds us that the world has many different cultures, many different viewpoints, many different philosophies. And so that's one of the, the primary strengths of the notion of eclecticism. So our music offerings are quite wide, not anywhere near as wide as our friends at CJ, CJSR, uh, but currently we are, we, were, we are somewhere in between, I'd say in the middle of, um, 
uh, a commercial station, shall we say, and the full spectrum that we hear on CJSR. So something that people might not know that is very unique to CKUA is that it isn't a commercial station. And I think that's important. I also think it's important when we think of universities and public education facilities. And I'm wondering if you could tell me what that means for radio. Well, to your point, we are a not-for-profit organization. So we generate, we generate income from our, directly from our listeners, just like CJSR. But because we're not-for-profit, our goal is not to generate profit, but to serve the community. And because it's, it's about public service rather than creating a profit. So we are directly beholden to our listeners um, and try to stay as responsive as we can to them. And our mission these days is to serve the music, arts, and culture communities in Alberta by giving voice to the participants in that culture. So whether it be a theater group in Medicine Hat, a sculptor in Grand Prairie, a painter in, in the Bow Valley, we try and find airtime to tell their stories and surround all those stories with a wide variety of music. Well, I feel there's an accountability that comes and I can hear that when I listen to public radio. Well, and I think public radio attracts, but the people who work at public radio are also drawn to the mission. So you have interested, educated presenters speaking to people who are interested in, in having a wide range of viewpoints exposed to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you very much. Um, I don't want to take any more of your time. I really appreciate it. Let me know if you need anything else, Lisa. Like public radio, HUM strives to be responsive to the large and active community of learners that participate in our classes. Our themes pick up on leftover questions and interrupted discussions we never, ever have enough time for. Last term, we piloted our first year-long course with the theme of land. Throughout the term, it became clear that stories are woven into landscapes and also used by others to shape our own understanding of land. Whether it's Ducks Unlimited convincing us they are more concerned with wetlands than sport hunting, or how stories of Mars shape how we experience Earth. Stories shape how and what we know. So this term, we want to think more about the power of storytelling. Each week, you can expect a combination of storytelling theory from U of A faculty, interviews of storytellers, stories, readings, music, and activities. Our hope is that we will also have stories to share from you. It is important to keep in mind that all these classes have been edited by us. We continue to try and share the words and stories as they are meant for you to hear them, but there is always more material than airtime, so th some things will not get shared. As we talk about in HUM, the choices we make about what information gets shared is always filtered through societal and personal beliefs about what counts as important. With this in mind, we continue to challenge practices that privilege certain voices over others. Race, class, gender, and ability all come together to inform the choices we make, from who we interview and how we edit those interviews, to how we structure the class and how we use our minimal financial resources. We are also doing our best to share many ways that many people tell stories. This could include, but it's not limited to, 
art, movement, poetry, pictures, craft, music, and ceremony. Matthew James Weigel, a Métis and Dene poet in the city, shared with us how poetry is a way that he tells the story of his family and their ties to the land and treaty. Hi there. My name is Matthew James Weigel. I am a Dene and Métis poet and artist here in Edmonton, and I write poetry to tell stories about this place. Poetry is storytelling. It's founded in traditions of spoken word, which is a Black and Indigenous tradition. So for me, poetry and story is always rooted in the place that it's created. It's really important to me to express that when I write about my family signing treaty, and when I write and speak about this place. Our bodies are literally made from the stuff around us, the water, the air, the plants, the animals. And the very concept of treaty is built on all the relationships between these things. And those relationships go back to the beginning, long before the numbered treaties were signed. So telling my story and my family's story is also telling the story of this place, of treaty, of those relationships. It's all connected and it's all the same thing, just with a lot of different moving parts that work together. Here's a few of those poems, and they're available in my upcoming chapbook from Vallum Magazine, which you can pre-order now on their website. 1876, Treaty Number Six. Go. Go. I wake up at 6 a.m. to a weight on my chest. I massage it until it says the word treaty. 1876 and my uncle is at Bayonon. Signs the treaty with a leftward slant. It is August and the aspens bend in the wind. Dreamt I was in a library again. Walking down the stairs into the basement. Walking down the stairs into the earth. I see the treaty parchment on a wooden table. It comes as no surprise the land herself holds this knowledge. 1921, Treaty Number 11. My lungs are full of spruce trees, but otherwise I am empty. I am here to witness. 1921, and grandfather working for the company in Fort Providence. It is June, and that far north the sun would not set on the British Empire. He signs the treaty with a heavy ink. Dreamt I was a library again. It is an all-or-nothing calling. I have language for it. I have bones. But otherwise, I am formless before the 7 a.m. alarm held loose on birdsong, briefly between the low notes on their way to the water. I am bounded by the geese and punctuated by the dwindling of the caribou. 2020. Witness. Continued. Dreamt I was a river again. A thread of a glacier unwinding itself in slow motion slow enough to dip hands in and drink.
Thank you so much, Marcy Cho. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at SpongePoet. We will continue to hear from voices like Matthew's throughout the class as we listen and share our stories with each other. We hope that you will share your stories with us as well. Each week on CJSR 88.5 FM at 6 p.m., HUM 101 will hit the airwaves so that folks can tune in and participate in a non-credit course supported by the University of Alberta in community service learning. Okay, back to the class or show or whatever we're calling it. We still have so much to talk about. Typically, we begin each HUM class by going through the syllabus. This year, we don't quite have a full term down in the same way we normally do. We are working month to month as we have ongoing interviews with storytellers. We do know that the next three classes will focus on Indigenous storytelling, cooking, and food. There are monthly kits we'd like to share with you that provide additional materials and activities for each class. These kits include readings, activity supplies, writing materials, and such. If you don't have access to online, please reach out to us and let us know how we can get these kits to you. Because there are no prerequisites to participate in HUM, and we'll be using language from across disciplines, such as English, sociology, history, medicine, and also across cultures, we want to make sure that we have a bit of shared vocabulary that includes some principal terms that will come up throughout the semester. Each episode, a volunteer will introduce working definitions for terms that we will discuss on that week's episode, but that will also come up throughout the term. If we've missed one, let us know, or if you have a different understanding, please share it with us. Language is forever changing, and the words that we use hold many different meanings depending on our relationship to them. Not to mention the supremacy of English at the university, a language that cannot hold the nuance, history, and specificity of many of the languages that animate our city. At HUM, we continue to grow our understanding of key concepts attempt to recognize and eliminate harmful language when we mess up and to honor the language people use to describe their own experiences. Things change, contexts differ, ideas form and die, and the positions we see and know from are different and varied. All the terms that we do use and attempt to find and share working definitions will be available on the website and in the monthly kits. This is probably a good time to remind listeners that they're tuned into Humanities 101, or HUM, a free non-credit class supported by the U of A and CSL. Though we wish we could all be in the same room this year, because of COVID-19, HUM will be happening here on CGSR 88.5 FM every Friday night from 6 to 7 p.m. You can also check out our website, hum101onair.wordpress.com where you'll find the course syllabus and any extra readings, links, or information. You can email us at hum101 at uoberta.ca, or you can text or phone us at 587-709-5472. If technology isn't your thing, mail us at hum at cjsr room 0-09 Students Union Building, University of Alberta, Edmonton AB, T6G, 2J7. We're happy to drop off stamped envelopes and all course materials if you'd like to participate via post. Please get in touch and we'll find a way to get the supplies to you.
How about we end today's class with a story from Morningstar's Cookum? Hi, Cookum. Do you want to introduce yourself? My name is Constance Wellier. I'm from Sucker Creek, Alberta, Reserve. I can tell you about the little people. Okay. Which was told by my grandmother. Um, we used to have just oil lamps and... Um, at night, she'd put us to bed, and then this is the story she would tell us, that we'd have to go to sleep and get up early because the little people were, half, were outside. We're outside, and they were working. And I'd ask, why? Why is little people out there? And they said, they don't come out during the daytime because they... Uh, they don't want to be disrupted. And I used to think, hmm. And I deliberately set out little toys. And sure enough, they'd be moved, like she said. And so I think it was to keep us inside when it was when it was when it got dark, to keep us safe from animals and stuff. But she used to tell us that they came and and moved things and they were she said she seen a light when she was young by the creek and we always lived by the creek beds because of the water and the fish and you know, bathing and everything so and there would be little hollows and she said she seen a light and she watched them and they were working and I was thinking are those the people they call the leprechauns? Because when we went to school, then they would talk about leprechauns. And I was thinking, where did my grandmother hear that when they didn't go to school? Mm -hmm. So, well, it came from somewhere. Uh, did they travel that far to hear those stories or... They'd really seen them because somebody moved those things, and I know my cookum went to bed early with us. So it could be true because as I grew older and I'd leave things outside, and they would be moved, and nobody else is moving them. But it was always by the creek, and I think that's why I had my home by the creek. To see if my grandchildren, my children, be able to see them. I remember he used to same thing. He used to tell me, "Don't go outside at nighttime. The little people are out there." And well, obviously I didn't because little people sound scary when you're like seven. It still sounds scary. <laughs> um, but I remember outside in the yard, he would always have little tiny benches, like. For babies, basically, that's how small they were. Or you would put little houses in the trees, not birdhouses, but other kinds of houses, or little faces in the trees, I remember those. So I remember you telling me about the little people, or that they used to stay in the fog. Yeah. In the field right across from the house. At nighttime, obviously, it would get foggy. And every, whenever we drive by it, I would get scared. I don't know why, just because I was like, oh, there's little people in there, I haven't died. I, I don't want to be here, I don't want to look at it. <laughs> I think it was like 
like I said, my grandmother obviously seen them because the way she described them, because we would ask how they looked. Eh? Mm -hmm. And they said, and she said, they looked like us, but small, really tiny, tiny people. And so she, I remember her, she would make, make little chairs out of branches and just stuff like pieces of apple out there. She'd leave apple and little carts. She made carts. So it was always, always that storytelling of that. And I, I think it was to maybe set, as I got older now, I'm 66, I'll be 67. And I'm thinking, uh, was it that so we can have connection to the earth and that there is other people? Um, because it seems like once in a while you'll see a really bright light that's under the dirt and the grass by my creek there. And that's why I have rocks and everything there so they can, they can get their way up because they're small. And like you said, and I grow a lot of flowers, things like that, so they can have access to it. And little pots. You remember I collect little tiny, tiny mm -hmm. pots? Yeah. And leave them out. And they're gone. They're gone. So I believe what my grandmother said, the storytelling, just like the white people have books. And different cultures, they have books. All our cultures are different. They have stories. Some of them are from animals. What do you think the purpose of storytelling is in Cree culture? In our Cree culture, I think it was a learning process to know that there is other people, little people, and to always have respect for them. Um, and it, it prepares us in our dreams. Um, she used to say also, if you dreamt about the little people, that they come to doctor you. And I know in the sweat lodge, it was used like the, there was little people that come. Um, my son was doctored by little dancers. He's seen them after my husband passed away. And it seemed like he got better. But he said he seen little people that came in. I wasn't there because it was only for the men mm -hmm. then. And, yeah. So the history behind it is, like, it's our storytelling. It has meaning. It also has uh, lessons to be learned. To have respect for our earth, to have respect for other people, and to go to bed early <laughs> and not be out in the dark, and so things don't happen to you mm -hmm. at night. You'll go to bed, and then you'll get up early. Do you think that using storytelling to help raise children or grandchildren is important, and do you think it's changed? as times have gone on. Like from when you were a kid with your cooking to you now with me as my cooking. It is important 
because you verbally have contact with your grandchildren and your children and your great-grandchildren, and they're going to have memories like uh, you and I, the stars, the moon, and sitting on the porch and looking up. We created a memory that nobody can ever take away. Just like my grandmother. Nobody has ever told me that stories about the little people. But as time went on, people that are older than me said their grandmothers and mothers told them stories like that. So obviously they've seen them. Mm-hmm. And why are the little lights under the, like, in the creek? I remember talking with my friends about the little people, and they've also heard about them. And their cooking from their mission. Yeah. So it's just it's just like like I said, other cultures, they they use books. Um they use blocks, stuff like that. Uh it's different, but it's creating memories. And all cultures it creates a memory. So those are important to take forward. Um the Cree people use animals. Um, insects, all kinds of things to create stories. And they're so interesting. Mm -hmm. Just like when other people, you read a book, they remember their mother or father or grandmother and they're laying down with them. And that smell of their grandparents, they'll never forget their mom and dad all have an extinct, like a a distinct smell and they have a connection. So, that's what I think they were creating. Mm-hmm. So through the sharing of stories, you are creating memories with the person you're sharing them with. And those memories are what guide us through and show us values and lessons. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Because you will take those stories. They'll never die. The story will never die. It'll always create keep going and keep going and it makes it interesting because some of them get to say well my great-grandmother my mom my mushroom my chapon they'll all have stories all of them will have stories and memories they're creating bonding Mm -hmm. which is important bonding is important to grandparents to parents and it's too much technology that has taken those storytelling away so it's important that us as grandparents make that time for our grandchildren and our children to tell them the stories tell them so they have memories bonding is so important because sometime in their life, they're going to do that to their children and their grandchildren. But it, it causes, I think, personally, it causes stability. Um, Stories bring stability? Yep. Yep. And it's all, all there. Everything's there. And you just have to listen, that's all. Mm-hmm. How do you think stories bring stability? Well, they also keep you grounded. Grounding is stability. Because 
you take the time to listen. Where if you're doing something on your games and stuff, you're all your your brain is all over the place. Where storytelling, it's at the moment. Mm-hmm. At that moment, at this time, this moment. And that's what I talked about, creating memories. One of my favorite memories was in the old lighthouse when we had the back porch. We were sitting on it, and this was when DJ's cat had so many babies, so there were so many kittens around. But we were sitting outside, and it was nighttime, so it was dark, and obviously the stars were beautiful, and you could see them so clearly. But I remember you were, we were sitting on the same chair, and you were holding me, and then I started seeing these, like, red flickers in, in the, like, in the air or in the sky or something, and I was like, Kukum, what is that? Like, what are those? And there are fireflies. Mm-hmm. I remember watching the fireflies fly around. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, that was really yeah. a long, long time ago, but I still remember it so vividly. See, that's a memory. That's a connection we have. Mm-hmm. And like when I see fireflies, I always think, star, mm-hmm. right? And like my kids, they used to watch them too. And they make that click sound. And mm-hmm. It's beautiful on a hot summer night, late at night, when they come out. And uh, the Native people made stories about those too. You know, mm-hmm. they could tell the weather by those, those, it was a mating season. It was a male that lights up like that. And it was stories like... The birds will have lots to eat or we're going to have a good day tomorrow because they came and let us know. Mm-hmm. Those are memories, connections, and storytelling. Like my grandmother telling us those stories. My grandmother, we're picking roots and she's joking and telling a story at the same time. I remember you once told me if there's a ring around the moon, it'll be hot the next day. Or you used to tell me, I think you were telling my mom, and I was kind of just around and I heard it, but you would tell me that when Musha Marvin would go hunting and he would be gone for a few days, you would always know he would be back the following day if the sun was setting and it was red. Yeah, if there was a red streak in the sky. Yeah, you would know he would be back the next day. Yeah, because that was our connection too. Uh, we we were together since we were very young. I was 13. And, you know, and when he would go hunting and stuff like that, I'd watch. I'd, I've, I've had something with always the sky, the moon, the sun, because that was taught to me too. Mm-hmm. And I'd notice every time he went hunting, the sky would be red. And I'd get everything ready, prepared for the meat to come. And that's a memory. That's a connection that we had as husband and wife. And then we, um, in the sun, like in the winter time, when there's a circle around the sun, you can, you know, there's going to be a storm. Or if there was a storm already, it'd be like the sun dogs, they call them, the rainbows on each side, and the weather was going to change. Either going to be, 
a really sunny day, but going to be cold. The weather would change. Yeah. And the streaks across the sky meant it was going to be windy too. Like Those are stuff that I learned from my grandparents and my mom. Yeah. That you've now shared with me. And if I have children, I can share with them. Yeah. And so yeah. The stories we share with our people just bring more memories and more connections. Yeah. Which just make us like a stronger family, a stronger unit of people. Yeah. Right? You create a bond. Stories create a bond. Yeah. And they're important. Bonding is very important. Uh, too much too much technology, these these are good what you have because you're gonna be able to play it back one day. When I have gone far, like not far, but I'll be there. And when you feel your heartbeat, when I tell you, when you feel your heartbeat, that's me. That's your mom. That's your dad. That's me. That's our people there. So protect it. Look after your body. Do things right. Important to get an education and take it back to your people. Because they're lost. A lot of people are lost because there's not that story anymore. We've lost that to technology, like gaming and everything. We didn't have those things when we were a kid. We didn't have all those. My grandmother made uh, my grandmother made dolls out of old woolen socks. Like they were clean mm-hmm. and we were always buttons. Everything was recycled, and the earth was clean. And she said one of these days she would tell us a story when she was sewing. And one of these days she said you, we'd all look up because they were playing, and you didn't see them very often. And she would say in Cree, one of these days there'll be so many and they're going to run into each other. Yeah, and I remember that. Whenever we have, uh, you know, get airplane crash and there's too many. I don't think we were made to fly. Birds are made to fly. Not us. Old people will stay young if you keep asking, keep talking to them. They will stay young in the mind. Okay, Kukum. Thank you. Kisagi Din. Kisagi We ended today's class with Cookham Constance, and we want to end all classes with a story. Our hope is that these will come from those of you who are listening and participating. There will be guided activities that will lend themselves very well to making stories. Our hope is that these will come from those of you who are listening and participating. There will be guided activities that will lend themselves very well to making stories. But then there are all the other ways of telling stories. If you would like to share a story during the last bit of class, then please send it to us. We want to put it on air. You could do that by emailing us a typed, scanned, or recorded story at hum101 at uAlberta.ca, phoning us, 
and leaving a voicemail at 587-709-5472. Texting us words, pictures, or audio at that same number, 587-709-5472. Or mailing us a story to HUM101 at CJSR room 0-09 Students Union Building, University of Alberta, Edmonton, Alberta, T6G, 2J7. And a quick reminder that we can send or drop off stamped envelopes if you would prefer to use the post. Just let us know. Now, next week we are starting the first part of a two-part class on Indigenous storytelling. So make sure to set your dial to 88.5 FM and tune in at 6 p.m. for HUM 101. A big thanks to all our storytellers and to Jason Bores and Chris Harper of AG47 for our theme music. Have a good night and we'll see you next week.